This is On and Off Your Mat Podcast, episode 69, Honoring the Roots of Yoga. For this episode, I sat down with Susanna Barkataki. Susanna is a yoga teacher, certified yoga therapist, and the founder of Ignite Yoga and Wellness Institute, where she runs Ignite Be Well 200 and 500 hour yoga teacher training programs. She is the author of the forthcoming book, Honor Yoga's Roots, Courageous Ways to Deepen Your Yoga Practice. And with a degree in philosophy from UC Berkeley and a master's in education from Cambridge College, Barkataki is a diversity, accessibility, inclusivity, and equity yoga unity educator who created the groundbreaking Honor, Don't Appropriate Yoga Summit with more than 10,000 participants. As always, I really appreciate your support for this podcast, so thank you so much for being here. I have just started a brand new Instagram page at On and Off Your Mat Podcast, and we are starting all the way back from the beginning, revisiting every single episode. So come check it out, follow us, and catch up on all the episodes you've missed and their content, the best nuggets, and get reminders on your favorites episode. You can also continue to show your support through Patreon. For as low as $5 a month, you can get access to more content about the podcast, exclusive episodes, tutorials, guided meditation, and more. And you also have a second and a third tier where you can get access to some or all the classes we've been recording on Zoom and continue to record during this shelter in place. If you'd like to have access to all of this and or just help me in the creation of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat and become a premium member on the tier of your choice. All right, ready? Let's get to our episode of today with Susanna. Hi, Susanna. Hello. Great to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. So Mm -hmm. Susanna, for listeners that don't know you very well, can we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself, about your yoga journey? I think it will give us kind of context into our subject of today and maybe introduce why you're passionate about honoring yoga's roots. I think it all comes together. Yeah, I think about this so much. You know, it's like there was no time in my life where, um, where, like, I think my life was just destined for this path because Mm -hmm. born an Indian person mixed to a white mother and an Indian father in the middle of the UK, you know, during a time when there was a lot of tension and a lot of racial discrimination, I, I already was like an other. I already was experiencing so much separation and so much lack of unity and so much not belonging that as I grew um, and tried to make sense of that, the only possible answer was a path that literally means unity, right? was a path that's like, hey, through practicing in this way, you can unify yourself with yourself, yourself with others, yourself with something greater than you. And so really my path to being passionate about studying yoga and and honoring yoga and practicing yoga uh, in its full expanse came from like the need for self-love, right? Mm. The need for self-connection, the need for affirming those things about me that the world around me was telling me were wrong or bad or just uncool or weird. And it was like, wait, no, actually, I think there's more here. I think there's, or I feel that there's so much richness and so much um, so much depth and care in the yoga practice when we explore it in, in the full range of what it can offer. So, um, so that's really what brings me to this work is, is self-love and then wanting to share that love with 
um, everyone else and and also preserve this practice that's brought me so much joy and um, freedom, preserve it in its full essence so we can pass it on to future generations, which I'm sure you and probably many of the folks listening feel that connection too, right? We've been touched by yoga and what drives us to want to share it when we do is how impactful it's been for us. Mm-hmm. And so your passion about sharing it, is it to really allow people that have or had a similar experience to find that unity, that self-love or, and for everybody in a more broader sense, do you? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a great question. Uh, to me, it's, I, I definitely do try to prioritize the experience of people who may have um, had any kind of oppression, right. Or any mm-hmm. kind of any kind of separation, which were trauma, which honestly is like pretty much everyone, right? So, um, but to prioritize the the experiences of and kind of rebalance where things have been less equal. Um, so working towards equity, not just equality, and and so that is a priority for me. But it it sits alongside. You know, yoga is not just for any certain type of person. Yoga is for everyone. It didn't come to any one person. It kind of came through a culture, through a path and a history and and has been codified over thousands of years. And so I do believe, you know, true yoga is, is for anyone who wants to connect to it and go deeper with it. Awesome. I'm happy you mentioned that. We'll come back to that a bit later. Uh, but before we really dig into like our subject of today and talking about the roots of yoga Um, I'd like to go just over a couple things so we're all on the same page. Really basic, but I've read you saying there has been a misunderstanding to what yoga is in the West today. So Mm -hmm. can we start by just doing a definition of it so we know what we're talking about? So what is yoga? Not for you necessarily, although you might have a personal relationship to that experience of yoga, but what is the definition you work with, let's say? Yes, that's great. And so, you know, I would say... Yoga is a codified series of almost scientific practices that are aimed towards personal and social liberation. And those practices involve a number of things. And they've been organized. You know, we have Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, but we also have other texts, other Vedic texts that explicate and explain and lay out how to practice yoga. We also have poetic texts, you know, where yoga is mentioned like the Bhagavad Gita, where, you know, it's explained, but more poetically or through story. And so there are all these different ways in, but the one thing that I would say is similar about all the different texts and the paths of coming into practice is that yoga is more than just the physical. In fact, in every one of those places, it utilizes physical practice in order to take us beyond, you know, to something greater, to that part of ourselves where we're there, you know, like, I don't know if you've had those moments. I've certainly had a few in my life where I'm like, this, like just what's around, like chair, table, you know, dog, like my dog is like, there's more to life than just the physical. There's more than just this, you know, sometimes it's in nature that I have that feeling. Sometimes, honestly, it's in like, great trauma like I broke my femur when I was younger um and I have this feeling even in the midst of extreme pain of like there's something beyond right there's something greater than just this moment this life and so yoga in its full expanse is certainly not just asana and that's the misunderstanding that we end up often 
uh, coalescing around, especially in the West, is like focusing on yoga for, you know, tighter abs or a better whatever. You weight know. loss. Yeah, weight loss or any of this. And, and that really is a misunderstanding um, because actually it's, it's going in the opposite direction because the early yoga practitioners were often, you know, they were shramana practitioners. Shramana means like forest ascetics. So they were practicing tapas, one of the um, one of the ethical foundations of yoga. Tapas is like discipline or burning fire, devotion. And tapas practices in early shramana traditions, these forest-based yoga traditions, were um, quite intense. Mm-hmm. And were actually bodily practices meant to help the practitioner transcend their attachment to the body. And so what we've done is flip that and just create more more attachment to the body. Yeah. And so, um, and so when we're looking at how to practice the full expanse of what yoga is, it's looking beyond just asana to yoga philosophy, yoga ethics, you know, even specific practices like mantra, mudra, um, mantra, sacred sound, mudra, sacred, sacred gesture with the body, with the, um, with the limbs, with the fingers, with the eyes, um, as well as the rest of the Eightfold Path. Mm-hmm. So then bringing in those extra pieces would be for you the way to move away from that reduction of yoga into what asana or onto the body itself, but bring in all of the other limbs and all of the other aspects, keeping in mind what the goal is and what you're trying to do. Yes. And there's one additional piece, which is because <laughs> yoga has come to us through the lens of colonization. Uh, we have had a displacement of the kind of original curators and practitioners of yoga for mm, somewhere between 100, 200 years, maybe up to even 300 if if you look at some of what was going on in colonial India. And so because of that, there also is the necessity for bringing a a lens of appreciation and like acknowledgement, like a spiritual lineage acknowledgement saying, um, we acknowledge that these practices come from a place and a people and we honor them and we respect them. And we know that they practiced, you know, through thousands of years from teacher to student, teacher to student to share this wisdom with us. And we all have teachers that we can respect and honor and name. And, um, and then we will have students, right? And even if we don't, I really like to challenge people. It doesn't mean you have to teach asana. Um, my greatest teacher sometimes is my seven-year-old child who doesn't teach sometimes. me sometimes. so um you know in those moments where he's like mom why is your voice like that when I got hurt you know he's just like be mindful bring awareness you know he can be that that um that adult of of attention and awareness to an inner state inside so yes um so practicing all of the limbs and then also honoring the roots. Now I do want to mention one also important thing, which when I talk about spiritual lineage acknowledgement, it doesn't mean we have to name um, because unfortunately there are so many abusive uh, lineages. It does not, I'm not in any way saying we have to uplift or name teachers who have been abusers, right? Mm-hmm. Or even lineages we don't feel connected to anymore if we trained in them. And that is a key part of when we're talking about yoga is unity and yoga is liberation. Um, a guru or a teacher who has 
has abused has strayed from their role as a true teacher, right? And so, um, so it's important to to keep in mind kind of these more. I would say they're more modern considerations, but based on a foundation of yogic ethics, which has been there for thousands of years. And so instead of saying that name of a teacher who's been abusive, you can say, you know, teachers from um, whatever tradition or the Hatha yoga tradition from India, from South Asia, you know, and still honor the roots without having to get into naming um, or uplifting uh, practice or, you know, path that you don't believe in anymore. Sure. And so how does that definition, like when we think of the idea of the goal is liberation, the goal is unity, um, we're trying to, you know, detach from the body, all of those things, how does that come or translate into our experience, modern day Western experience of the practice in a studio? What does that look like in application? Yeah, there's so many ways it can look, right? And that's what's fun to me um, as an educator. I mean, I'm a teacher. And so, yeah, I think it's important for people to like notice those things. They might not realize that there's all those little pieces that they actually experience that or that they don't, but they don't even know where to look and what to look at. Right. That's so true. And, um, And so I think it's like for students going to a studio, asking like because their teacher may have learned more than they're teaching like hey can you share a little bit more about yoga ethics or can you share a little bit more about yoga philosophy um so and then teachers can explore and learn how to respectfully share more about yoga ethics yoga philosophy um do the trainings do the study do the practice if they didn't get that you know their yoga teacher training so they can share more fully and there's really um specific ways to do that that I think can be adapted for different situations. And I'll give you a a story, an example. I love teaching children, um, teaching yoga philosophy to children. And so one of the last classes I was teaching in before um, this time where we're not in person was, uh, was a preschool. And I would go in and I liked to do yoga and literature. So we do some poses connected to a book, but we would read this, this story. Um, and there's one great book that I love to read called the circus ship. And in the circus ship, there's a number of animals and some dramatic things happen to the animals. So we get to do all the poses, you know, connected to like crocodile. Oh, you see a crocodile or, um, or monkey pose, you know, and so they connect in that way. But the, moral because so many good children's books or even um just children's books in general have a message and Mm so here there was kind of the um the not so kind character and then the animals helped each other and they managed to escape the the unkind circus owner and so we talked about in yoga there's the concept of ahimsa of care for one another. And so as we were going through, we we're like, oh, who's practicing ahimsa? Who's not practicing ahimsa? And by the end of the book, all of the kids knew that yogic philosophy term and they could explain where they practiced it and where the characters practiced it and didn't. Now, all of that just sounds like a lesson, right? But later, like a month later, one of the children was on monkey bars and they were about to fall down and they were scared because they were too high. Another little kid ran over and they're like three years old. Okay. So these are little kids and held her up 
the teachers until the teachers could come and help. And, you know, I was there like teaching another yoga class and I saw this all happen. And I later went over and, you know, the one, the girl who had been holding on was fine. She got down the little boy. It's like, wow, you know, what made you run over? Cause the, the, the school teacher was like, I've never seen a child do that. You know, I've never seen someone put themselves in danger like that to help in it, like even to be aware. And he said, was the power of Ahimsa. And I was like, you got it. You know, you got, you got what I was hoping to, to share a month ago. You know, it wasn't the poses so much. It was more of that essence and that way of being. Um, So I think it's very, possible. You know, if we can do it with three-year-olds, we can do it with adults too. (laughs) And there are many different ways that we can weave the philosophy and the practice, even through a simple, you know, 30 minute, one hour asana class. Mm -hmm. So that and what you mentioned a little bit in the beginning where yoga didn't come to one person, but it came through for all humanity. Um, I'm assuming that some people just by the subject of this episode might be pre-triggered into the idea that maybe you think that white people shouldn't practice or white people shouldn't teach or right like that there's this like separation there that it (laughs) is so obviously I hear that that's not the case and at the same time as a white practitioner or as a western practitioner or teacher there's some things that we could consider continue to study continue to integrate in the practice in a way that we are honoring that. So you talked about philosophy. Um, what else do you think as students or as teacher, we can ask or we can self-study in to be a bit more complete? This is so on point because there's a way in which, yes, yoga came through and it came to everyone. And we're in a certain social conditioning, right? Like ultimately we all are beyond this body. That's part of what yoga teaches us. And so we sometimes can get stuck in that. It's like, wait, but we're all one or we're all, you know, um, we're all one human family. And, and that is true. And that is the ideal that I also share. And that I think yoga in part is here to bring us towards. And in this very moment, a uh, black man walking into a typical yoga studio in the city that I live in is going to have a very experience even than me as a brown woman or a white woman, right? And so, um, or a white man. And so looking at those different positionalities and looking at our privilege based on our identity and then adjusting and addressing for that. So I would say, you know, today, part of what it is to be a responsible and holistic yoga teacher is to have some understanding of social justice, is to have some understanding of social equity since yoga is about unity. But to get to that unity, we have to look at separation. And that's part of what, you know, I, my kind of body of work is really about is like, how can we examine separation, reflect on our own part in that, whether we have felt isolated or separated, like I shared right at the beginning, I certainly, but I've also experienced a lot of privilege, right? And, um, and so how can I use those things to act, to reconnect, and then to create liberation for all? So to me, that's part of what it is to be a responsible and kind of ethical yoga practitioner. Um, today, right? That is different than probably those Shramana early forest monastics and, you know, the, the practitioners under trees and by streams um, maybe weren't thinking of this 
I wonder how it would have been different if they had, right? Because I'm sure there were issues of equity and inequity even in those times. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then in terms of the yoga philosophy side, it, it really would be all of like, you know, basically for every, <laughs> every I, I explore and read one yama or one niyama every single week. And I've done that for the last 15 years. And I reflect on it sometimes in community, sometimes by myself. And I think about how I can practice that yama or niyama more deeply. And so there's no end, right? That's the beautiful thing about yoga uh, and any deep practice really is that we get to study it and embody it and live it our whole lives. So even if we just started there with the first two limbs of the yamas and the niyamas, um, we would have a whole bunch of material to work with. And then to go on to um, asana, of course, but I think we have a strong emphasis on that, but, you know, inclusive asana, asana that brings everyone in, trauma-informed asana, those are ways we can go deeper as well. And, um, and then breath work, pranayama, pratyahara, sense withdrawal, just being aware of what we're putting our focus on, you know, mm-hmm. how many of us wake up, and I certainly have days like this, where I wake up and I um, jump right to my phone, as opposed to journaling and, you know, pranayama and, and asana and meditation. And so those kinds of practices really are pratyahara practices. Um, dharana mindfulness, being mindful of what we're doing, whatever it is, right? This is where yoga can really come off the mat and into our whole lives is, uh, is when we're practicing in moment to moment. And then, um, you know, dhyana, meditation, samadhi, bliss, joy, all of those things. But, but beyond that as well, like drishti focus, um, looking at the koshas, looking at the energy systems, the nadis, even getting into Ayurveda, the subtle body. There's so much, right? And so in a way, I don't want to overwhelm people because the other, the other piece of it is any one place you go very deep, you actually uncover so much else. And so a, a concrete example I can give there is, you know, when I was in Bihar in, in India practicing with one of my teachers, Shankarji, he gave me one mantra, one uh, bead, mala bead set that he had, when he had just come out of retreat for 10 years, silent retreat. And he gave me this incredible gift, which was his mala beads that he'd had with yeah, it was, but again, that's that like detachment from the physical. He, all he'd had in the, in the cabin with him was, or in the hut with him. With <laughs> I know. And a Bhagavad Gita and like a little bowl and, and like two changes of clothes. That was it. And he gave me the, um, the mala beads and the Bhagavad Gita. And he said, practice this shloka, practice again and again, and again, read the Gita and then practice with your, your Japa, you know, with a, yeah. a mantra and just deepen with that for years. You don't need to do anything more. Just practice that. And that was an incredible teaching because I was, you know, had that, like, I want more, I want to get it. I want this. And he, and he was like, no, just do that. And so yeah. we can deepen in that way. It doesn't have to be so flashy, you know, it can be very, um, very personal and very private and very intimate and very slow and and um, in a different kind of way than we're used to here in the West. 
Yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive, but I find it brings back that essence of yoga, that less is more, that, you know, presence, that it's not about reaching to the next thing. Can you be okay with doing this one, one thing for years? Yeah. And can you grow from, and you will eventually, obviously grow from that, but can you find contentment and joy and bliss in that little tiny practice that you will repeat a million times? Right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and not like let yourself be bored and kind of quit and you know move away from that so just that it's like such a powerful practice just to stick with it yes yeah so those are all ways that we can start to honor the roots a little bit how about just knowing the history of yoga mm-hmm. yeah. yeah can we do like a brief overview for people that are like well I don't really know that much about it yeah of course um Absolutely. It's so important to know our history and <laughs> know where, where these practices come from and, you know, and the kind of context that they've been in. So in the early Shramana traditions, um, you know, the way that I've understood it, and this is from my main teacher, but also, you know, when I was in India, I did travel and do some kind of anthropological exploration and interview villagers and different people in like what's now the what was the Saraswati River Valley, and um, later now is different parts of northwestern India and the Himalayan region. And the majority of people that I talked to, pretty much everyone that I spoke with, is like these practices have they were earth based practices, right? And they weren't the purview of just one religion because when you're in India, I mean. This is another tangent, so I'll pause on the tangent for a second that are <laughs> current cultural um, and geopolitical issues going on. But in general, when you're in a village, you can have a Muslim person, a Jain you know, person, a Hindu person, um, people of many different religions or cultural backgrounds, all living in the same community, doing different things, but coexisting peacefully, <laughs> right? Uh, Right now, there's a lot of political tension because the government, which is supposed to be secular, is not acting secularly and is acting um, and putting laws on the books that do discriminate. So that has currently changed. And in different times in India's history, that has happened in in different ways. But but the reason I bring that up is yoga itself was pre-religious, meaning it was earth-based, somewhat like pagan, like a pagan practice. So the deities or the there weren't even deities, but the, the practice was to vayu, the wind, to prithvi, earth, to um, jal, water, to surya, the sun. Like, if you look around you and you just notice... Yeah, it's the elements. It's the elements, right? Like, the th- basic nature of life. And so, yoga came from that. It was born as an earth-based spiritual practice, a practice to understand suffering, understand the world around us, and to be more in harmony with that world and with ourselves. And through time, it kind of coexisted and grew alongside the Shramana traditions, which turned into Buddhism, the Vedic traditions, which turned into Hinduism and Brahminical Hinduism, and then later was influenced too by Jainism and Islam, Christianity, right? So it's coexisted and influenced and been influenced by some of the major world religions, which is pretty interesting as you consider, and this is like over thousands of years. So, um, you know, depending on who you ask, yoga dates back to yoga as a practice 
in the Indian subcontinent um, in the Saraswati River Valley. And in this river valley, it's, it's around 2500 BCE. Uh, some scholars say much later, like more like 250 CE, but that's mostly Western scholars. And then some of the villagers I talked to and including my teachers say, well, no, actually yoga is much older than that. It's like mm-hmm. five, 10,000, right? But we just don't have record. Yeah, we don't have proof. Yeah, we don't have proof. And I find that really interesting because it calls it up that question of, well, who do we listen to and how do we know what we know? Like, do we only trust uh, it was always an oral tradition, right? Even does it matter, it, though? I, I mean, yeah, I think it does. It does because this is why. Harvard, there's some scholars out of Harvard that have uh, slabs of sacred writing mm-hmm. from that time. And they cannot decipher them. So this is like oh, I see. hundreds of years deciphering this. And now what they're saying is, we can't interpret this as a language. We can't understand what it is. We can't decode it. So we're going to claim it's not a language. Hmm. And we're going to offer $5,000, like a bounty on anyone who can decode it. You know, so it's like, basically, it matters in the sense that... How would uh, they know that the person is actually decoding? I know, I know. <laughs> uh, that there's a kind of dehumanization, right, that comes from saying these primitive people who don't even have a real language, like how could they have had this evolved system, right? So that's why- Well, I, I feel like by now we know that that's not the truth. Like, <laughs> I feel like our yeah. studies are, yeah, I don't know. But. Yeah, but you know, what's wild is even my family members who studied, you know, post-liberation, uh, that like India was free from the British, they studied the British empire. They studied British, um, British history in India. They're, they're growing up in India. And, and my cousins as well, you know, so this is like my contemporaries and they did not study the rich heritage and culture of their own people. Right. And that's really intense. That's heartbreaking. That's, yeah, it is. And that's why the, the knowing the history and understanding the history does matter. And so all of this, right, this legacy of knowledge and study and refinement and, you know, yoga being passed on teacher to student came through to the West um, you know, at the Parliament of, of World Religions with uh, Swami Vivekananda, and then was shared in the West, but again, primarily in, um, like, first a little bit on the East Coast and then in Los Angeles. And so it mm-hmm. took on this interesting life of its own in the coming together of body-conscious Hollywood and, you know, kind of the hippie, like, spiritual seekers and... Um, and then the Indic traditions. And so we got, and I would say many of us are heir to a practice that in many ways was already watered down by the time it reached the shores of uh, the West. And it was watered down in order to make it palatable, in order to adjust because of assimilation and internal expression mm-hmm. of the things. Um, and there was real richness and depth, which is what has continued everyone's interest in this practice over those years. But so it's only really been in the West for, I don't know, maybe what, 120, 130 years. Hasn't been that long. Yeah. And I didn't mean that the history didn't matter, but whether it was 5,000 BC or 10,000 BC, maybe this didn't quite matter. And, you know, if you believe that it's a really old lineage, really old tradition, whether it's 5,000 or 10,000, it might kind of 
turn out to be the same for you <laughs> in your everyday life. Sure. I mean, as far as, yeah, our lived experiences, yeah. we can know and trust that we're, what's helpful to me, I have to say is like, I sit sometimes and as my mind wanders in meditation, you know, because it wanders a lot, uh, <laughs> I remember that those early practitioners sitting under trees, like their minds were wandering too. They might have been like composing their next Instagram post, like I sometimes find myself doing, but, um, but they still had that same problem. And so sure. the solutions that they had for the distraction are actually still applicable now. They're not different, even though we have somewhat different circumstances. The context is different. The practice is the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Do you think that watering it down so it can be palatable for the masses was a good strategy to then kind of deepen again? Or yeah, what's your opinion on that? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's so interesting because it's just what happens. And so yeah. it's hard to say whether it was good or bad or, you know, it just sort of is. I feel it's like a natural tendency of humans. You know, even as a teacher, when you start with a new group, you might not go like all out into your own like spirituality. You might start like a little smaller. And then as you connect and you, you know, there's trust and then you give a little bit more and you open a little bit more. So I've, you know, I think it's a very human thing to do, but I don't know if, if you had an opinion on whether or not it hurt the practice itself over time? Well, certainly I think it's hard to separate that, that, you know, it's, it wasn't a meeting of equals, right? Like when you had yogis, even in under the British Raj, certain courts, <laughs> it's hard. It's like Indians who were uplifted, who had status, who had power, who were accountable to the British Raj, the British rule, would have yogis in their court. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this situation of, you know, it's almost like having a patron for a yogic teacher that is under a power structure that's dehumanizing and oppressing that yoga teacher. Um, and so so there, there wasn't a meeting of equals, and nor was it when um, the first yogis came to the West for so many reasons. You know, like even my family had, um, when they were in college here, had to use the colored, you know, quote unquote, drinking fountains and the colored side of the bus and those kinds of things. And that was true for our early Indian yoga teachers, even though um, many of them did try and in some ways kind of found a loophole uh, and or were able to to get a little bit more privilege in ways that you know African American or black folks couldn't. Um, so so there's so many layers of complexity. But I think the important thing to note is it's not just two people coming together and like a new a new concept being taught. It's in the context of a system we'll call white supremacy, right? A system we're, we're calling um, uh, putting up systematically putting up one group and putting other groups down in order to maintain power. And so in that sense, it's not good, right? Because yeah. it, when you have systems like that, they're always looking to extract and exploit and control. Whereas yoga is so much about instead of extracting, it's like collaborating instead of controlling, you know, it's um, sharing instead of a hierarchy. It's like finding equality. I think that idea and just racism in general with the times we're in have been like a subject that 
is on everybody's lips. And I don't think yoga, as you're saying, and even now today is a place where we don't have racism, like we're not immune to that in that community. So how do you think it shows up in the yoga community? And what does it, what do we need to look at? Like, what do we need to consider to bring more equality or diversity or? Right. Right. Um, you know, it shows up everywhere. And, and um, this is what's so tricky, especially if folks are thinking, like I was looking recently at some yoga studios, just doing some research online, because after the murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and so many other folks, you know, in in the U.S., um, just for the color of their skin, it's like we're at this pitch of it's not okay. It's never been okay, but it's we're ready to create change, right? Also, mm-hmm. a disproportionate number of folks of color who are impacted by COVID or other health disparities. And that's true for Indians. That's true for Black folks. That's true for Latinx folks. You know, it's somewhere like 60, 70, 80% more likely um, for each of, uh, each of those groups to die of heart disease um, or diabetes, you know, things that are and all, for all intents and purposes, manageable or with the right care and, and health guidelines, at least a little bit more addressable, right? So there's yeah. there's all of these Disparity. um, yeah, disparities and public health issues that we're now seeing are playing out along racial demographic lines, um, which any person of color who is paying attention could have told you, but you might not know when you go to a studio and you know and you're just there practicing and alongside the people who are practicing with you or online in a class that that practice is like a life or death matter for some of the people there and and more just like a way of feeling good for someone else right so there's the one aspect is is that is that it actually is a public health issue and a um an equity and a representation issue and it's not as accessible as it should be no, it's really not. It's not. And you know what's hard? So when you say like, where does it show up? It's like most of my family, you know, who are Bengali and Assamese, so Indian, they say to me like, Susanna, I love that you do yoga, but I don't feel welcome in a yoga class. I don't mm-hmm. feel like I belong. Yeah. And, and so, and I hear that a lot from Black colleagues and friends. I hear that sometimes from my Latinx friends, from my Filipino friends. Um, I hear that from bigger body friends of all races, from trans friends of all races, you know, so um, people with disabilities, right? Mm -hmm. Veterans, like there's so many people out there who, like you said, like yoga just isn't so accessible for. And so it's like this question of interlocking systems of exclusion that I think as yoga practitioners and teachers today, one of the questions I often ask myself is like, well, who's missing, right? Mm -hmm. Who's not here in the room, in the yoga room, in the studio, in the virtual room? And why are they missing? And often the answer is, you know, say it's in a yoga teacher training or something I'm running uh, because I didn't have faculty that represented them, you know, so, so there was, there are people out there who didn't feel included uh, because they just didn't see someone like themselves doing the thing that we were doing. And 
I can hear people, you know, one question that comes up is like, oh, well, then do I need to go out and like get a black teacher and a this teacher and a white teacher and a bigger body teacher and a trans teacher? And the, and the answer is no, right? It's not about tokenizing and just trying to look as diverse as possible, but more about really building relationship. And then the, the collaborations, the mutual work, that stuff comes. Um, that stuff just kind of emerges from what we're um, the relationships we're in. And so that's kind of the solution I would say is like build authentic relationships. Really, first of all, look at that first question of like, who's missing? Where, mm-hmm. where missing? Um, what's missing? Where can I do better at learning, you know, reflecting and then, um, and then taking action through, through connecting to people and building relationships. And from there, then the right, you know, kind of public facing action comes. So it might be to join with some organization to hold events that are catered to a particular group, or there's not just bring a teacher, a new, a new face to the studio and let it be done. <laughs> right. Cause it can be so hard, especially if the studio, just for example, you know, I've been in this situation where the studio is all white um, and they hire, you know, me and, or like they hire one black person. And for that person of color, it's so awkward and so difficult. And so, one of the, like another best practices, like bring multiple people, right? If you're gonna kind of have diversity initiatives, don't just hire one person, like bring a bunch of people in at the same time. So there can be a shift in culture and then be prepared and open and welcome that shift in culture, which will naturally happen. Um, but so often you people get brought in as that kind of quote unquote diversity hire and then um, feel tokenized and the culture stays the same, right? So it takes mm-hmm. some real commitment, some real work. I would definitely say hire, um, you know, if there's anyone who runs studios or programs listening, like do the work to self-educate and then hire diversity equity trainers to guide you through that process so it isn't more harmful because that we can end up doing more harm. And, you know, myself, for example, as a cisgender person, I'm not trans. When I think about making my spaces inclusive for trans folks, um, if I just go out and then teach workshops on trans inclusivity, that's a problem, right? Because there's things I might miss because I don't have that lived experience. And so, um, and then I'm also not going to just tokenize one trans person, but like have relationships with many trans folks so they can share their different views and their different perspectives. Um, And over time, the culture shifts. And even in ways that I may have never thought of, or that may even initially make me uncomfortable. And that's part of it is when we're doing this work, we may feel uncomfortable like oh but I really liked doing x for this reason and why but that makes you feel excluded huh okay I have to reflect on that and sit with my discomfort and why I feel that discomfort and and then move forward and yoga prepares us for that we're so used to sitting with discomfort you know breathing through a shape it's difficult so we can use that same practice here and as a student, because that's more from the point of view of a teacher or of a trainer or a studio owner, as a student, how do you make people feel more welcome? How do you participate in that reversal of racism? Mm. You know, I would for sure say like diversify your feed, right? Like as a student, because I'm a practitioner too, I'm not just a teacher. I take classes from people, right? So I seek out and I specifically look for, in fact, I just found this really cool um, Australian 
uh, Indigenous Australian teacher who teaches a class for um, BIPOC, for Black Indigenous people of color, queer Black Indigenous people of color. It's like, how cool, right? Now with the internet, we can practice and we can identify who we practice with. And so, um, and there's many teachers of color who have classes open for all, right? For anyone who wants to show up. But look literally through who are the teachers you've learned from? Who are the teachers you follow? What does your feed look like if you're on social, right? And, And diversify it. Follow new people. Learn from new people. Attend a new class. We always learn from trying out something new. And then don't just try it once. Like commit to sticking to it for a month, for, you know, two months, three months, whatever it is. See what happens. Yeah, explore. Amazing. One thing we've touched on really lightly was cultural appropriation. Can we go a little bit more into that? Um, Maybe starting with what is cultural appropriation, especially in the context of yoga and what is not that, but we might think it is. Yes. Okay. Um, So cultural appropriation is really involves about Two criteria. There's always two criteria for cultural appropriation. And one is a power imbalance. And the second is harm. And so we talked a little bit before about like the meeting of Indians and Western yogis or Western, at that point, they're not yogis, right? But Western people, it's not a meeting of equals because there's systemic imbalance of power. And so, um, so there's that imbalance, which is something, you know, around diversity and equity work and race equity work that we can explore, like, where are the places I have power? Where do I not have power? And how can I adjust for that? And that's something I love taking people on explorations through because every time I always get new insight into the places I have disprivilege and the places I have privilege and how I can use that privilege, not to feel guilty about it, because that doesn't help me or anyone else. You know, no one really is out there wanting us to like give up our privileges, like, oh, take my college degree, take it away. You know, no, like that's my college degree. I worked for it and I got a lot from it. And um, and I can use my educational privilege to then uplift others who may not have had the opportunity to do that, right? So that's just an example. So it's not about getting stuck in the guilt with cultural appropriation, but is about acknowledging our power. And then um, the second is, Harm and harm can be of two types. One is disrespect, you know, like you see a, a deity that many people revere and respect so much, and that deity is like on a toilet seat cover, right? And it's just like, oh, it's so harmful. Like, there's a right, like, there's a cringe, yeah, there's like a ugh. yeah. And for people who are like that deity, you know, say Lakshmi or Ganesh, is like their mom, you know, or like their sacred divine friend and someone they are in communion with all day long. And so to see that in that way is just so... um, So branding, using it, like, yeah. Yeah. So that's one aspect of harm. But the second aspect is material harm. And this is where it gets um, really tricky and complex because, for example, if someone, you know, goes to India, who's not Indian, and they take a bunch of... um, models they're like a jewelry maker they love to make jewelry and they make jewelry based on like the different deities and then they come back and they sell like Lakshmi jewelry or Ganesh jewelry but they're not Indian they're not giving back to the jewelers that they learned from they're not giving back to the people who practice this you know these traditions that is harm on a material level because they're taking those things they learned from people and from the culture and then not 
you know, basically profiting up. from it. Yeah, they're profiting from it. And so when the, both those things are true, an imbalance of power and harm, you have cultural appropriation. However, it's so there's so many gray areas. And so that's why when I teach on this, it's like the goal is to inspire critical thinking, not to like have Susanna Barkataki or any other Indian give you an answer that's like the rule book, right? There's no rule book. We actually just need everyone thinking critically. Yeah. Like, hey, this is cool. This is, you know, this is not so cool. All right, let's figure out how we can adjust it. And the truth is, it's not a perfect world, right? And so there are things we can do where say that jewelry company, maybe, you know, one solution they have is like hire Indian designers, um, fund or send back money to Indian, you know, cultural uh, NGOs, things like that, right? So there are ways to um, do harm. Balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe balance that that power imbalance a little bit more. For some, it will still and always be cultural appropriation and never okay, right? And for others, they might say, well, that they're adjusting to some extent. Um, and so, and then some will say, no, they shouldn't profit ever, and this should be an Indian-owned company, right? So there's there's going to be many perspectives on cultural appropriation, um, but that's just a little bit of a beginning. And, and with yoga, um, we see cultural appropriation come up a lot around words and around um, around different clothing, you know, designs and brands. And there definitely, I think it's like, do the work, inquire, look at power, look at harm, and kind of start to begin to assess for, for yourself. And I think that's something you bring really well in your book, Honoring um, Yoga's Roots, where there's a lot of reflection for people to do. So if listeners want to really dig into this a little bit more, they should really get the book. When does it come out? Thank you so much. Um, yeah, it comes out in September and uh, it comes out at Pitta Praksha, which is a holiday around honoring ancestors. And so it just felt like the time to share something that, you know, the book really is, it's a lot of what we've been talking about, but really like a workbook to come back to, to explore, reflect on, you know? So I'm looking forward to sharing it. Is there a channel for people to, with the work they do reach back to you? Like, I'm sure that it would like feed and continue for you to understand and grow people's experience in that. Have you considered a way to have a communication line open? Yeah, yeah we have. We're going to do um, as soon as the book. So right now you can um, go to my website, which is susannabarkataki.com and slash book and get a free chapter. I'll put, I'll put the link for people to find. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. Cause especially cause my name can be hard to, hard to know how to spell. Um, fought for that one for so long. <laughs> but, um, and so we're going to do a webinar series where we take the theme. So separation. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. So it'll be separation, reflection, reconnection, liberation, right? One webinar for each and have a conversation. And then hopefully at a later point, we'll do a book club. It's a little more intimate because yeah. where anyone who has the book, we can come in and, and just talk and discuss. So I'm really looking forward because exactly, you're so right. It's like this work is just, it's almost... In, in its infancy, really. Um, yeah. And so mm-hmm. how, do we, how do we all grow and be a part of that movement of honoring yoga? We need to do it together. We have to, yeah. Yeah. 
Amazing. Anything else you want to add up before we wrap it up? If there's something you want listeners to leave with, like there was this nugget to make sure that like they caught that or is there, is there anything? Do you feel satisfied and um, complete? <laughs> no, I'm just putting my hand on my heart and really feeling into connection with the root of yoga, the heart of yoga and with mm-hmm. one of you, you know, just, I'm so grateful that people who are listening and for all of us who are practicing to deepen in yoga in this way, um, I don't take it lightly. You know, I really appreciate it and I am grateful for it and um, just feel so honored to connect with you and to connect with everyone on this path. Mm-hmm. So I think that bring, bringing that quality of self-appreciation and letting yoga speak through us and come through us and move through us. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'll put all your info in the show notes, all your links. If people want to say hello, they want to ask questions. Is there one place in particular you want them to reach out to you? Is it more email or social or? Yeah, social is great. I love being on Instagram and I do all sorts of, you know, fun things on there. So yeah. It's amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. It was a very interesting episode. Yes. Thank you, Erica. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review anywhere you listen. And if you wanted to continue, please don't forget, visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat. You can donate or become a premium member to get your hands on all our exclusive content. Check out the show notes to find more info about our guests of today, Susanna Barkitaki, or my top five biggest takeaways from this episode. Before you go, I just want to say a last thank you to Alexander Saba working in the background, creating music, editing, and mastering this podcast. Once again, thank you guys for listening. Until next time. <laughs>